What we're going to do tonight is just, you know, it's uh, one week left and there are things and conversations I have all throughout the quarter and it's kind of nice every now and then just to do something on the conversations I've been having. And the conversations are not just with y'all but within myself. And, um, and so tonight what I thought we'd do is we'd talk about anxiety. Uh, we're going to look at a passage from Matthew 6 uh, where Jesus, it's a, actually a sermon he preaches. We have this text of a sermon he preaches called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a small point that he makes within that sermon. And um, we're just going to talk about what is anxiety and is there hope to get out of it. And the reason why is because anxiety is this thing that's so comprehensive um, that in a sense we're almost making peace with it because, because we think that's just kind of what you have to do. Uh, in order to make it through life, in order to be successful in life, uh, we relate to anxiety the same way we relate to gas prices, which is, I can't change it, so I just have to make peace with it, right? It's terrible, it destroys me, I can't change it, but i got to figure out how to live life with that as just a reality I have no power over. And so we just try to make peace with it. We can't eradicate it, uh, we feel helpless to change it, and that's not how you're intended to go through life. It's actually not okay. And Jesus offers uh, the possibility, not of rest out there. That's how we think about rest, right? It's out there when I get around that corner, when I get to that place, when I, when I kind of get around this season, that's when I get to that place of rest. And Jesus is saying, no, there's actually rest to be had now. Uh, the, you can lay anxiety down now. But this is the frustrating thing about the gospel always. You're going to have to trust Jesus on this. Um, you're not allowed to follow Jesus and at the same time stay on belay, right? Stay roped in in case he doesn't work out. You can't have, by the definition of the way he offers rest, you can't, off, you can't receive the rest he offers and still hold on to your contingency plan. You will not enjoy the rest he offers as long as you hold on to your contingency plan. Because he's actually come to say that it's precisely our addiction to our plans and our need for control that's killing us. That that actually is the birthplace of anxiety. So you can't have rest unless you're willing to give those things up. The very heart of his solution is actually that you let go of your contingency plan and only then, only then do you have the hope of killing anxiety. So let's look at Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body and more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why, are you, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Rather, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that it speaks to something um, that is deep in us. And I pray as we consider it, dear God, that Your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts, make our hearts tender, so that Your Word would go deep and take root, dear God. We need freedom from this. Uh, let us accept the healing that you offer. Be with us, dear Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so what is anxiety? What we're doing tonight is just two simple points. What is it and what's the path out? Um, what is it and what's the path out? And we're just jumping right in. Um, the way one friend of mine defined anxiety is this, and, and I think this is a good place to begin work, but I don't think it's full enough. It says anxiety is fear in the face of uncertainty. It's fear in the face of uncertainty. I think that's a good starting point, but I think there's more to it. Um, Look at where the word anxious shows up in this text. What is Jesus talking about? Uh, He begins in verse 25, don't be anxious about your life. And what are the things, when he says your life, what does he start exploring? He articulates the essentials, right? Food, drink, and shelter. And he's, so he's going right down to the bare bones, the things that in, in, in our context we don't even worry about anymore. In, in an ancient Near Eastern context, in a rural agrarian setting, these are things they worried about. But nonetheless, they're essentials. They're the bare bones for survival. And he's saying the fundamental things of life, don't be anxious about them. And being anxious about these things won't add anything to your life. And in fact, what happens is it does the opposite. It takes life from you. Anxiety is this thing that steals life. It's no coincidence that the culture that has accomplished the most is also the most anxious anxious culture and has heart disease as its number one killer. That's us. We are the most anxious culture ever, and we've achieved more than anybody. And our hearts are literally physically collapsing because of it. Anxiety doesn't add to life. And and fear-driven pressure doesn't add to your life. It's actually taking life from us. And what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, he's starting with the essentials. The bare, the basement. He's saying, you know what? You can't secure those by being anxious about them. You can't even secure food and drink. You can't secure the essentials of life. And we think that doesn't come into contact with us, that kind of reality. We don't think about the essentials or worry about them very often. But talk to Sam Umloff about his knee. It doesn't work anymore. It took his wrestling career from him. It's over. Talk to Anthony Degani about his shoulders. More so than that, talk to Jay Cherry, who was standing on the ground in Haiti when the ground shook and thousands of people died. Talk to Elizabeth and his friend Ashley Janovich, who... A young married girl, the same age as us, who last week a tree fell on her husband. She has three kids. Her husband's gone. We like to think that the essentials aren't in play, but Jesus is saying, let's just start the essentials. Do you know that they can't be secured by your anxiety? And if not the essentials, what about anything beyond that? 
right? If not the essentials, what about anything beyond that? What about how much more all the other stuff, right? All the future we're trying to take hold of, your potential mate that maybe you're heading towards, your job, the place you're going to be, your major, your successes, your productivity, your impact, right? Your opportunities, right? We want control of all of the opportunities we have. We want to take hold of them and manage them. And he's saying... Not even the essentials can you secure by your anxiety. So how much more? All those other things. But he doesn't just leave it right there as well. He brings in another huge realm into the conversation when he says, again, in verse um, 34, Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Not just the essentials today, but every moment ahead of us, don't be anxious about. He brings the future into play right here. Right? If there are a few things that maybe are certain today and are certain right now, there's far more uncertain about tomorrow. And the further you project out control in your life, the less and less certain it gets at an exponential rate. It explodes. And that's where, queer, uh, that's where fear creeps in. And what I want you to think about anxiety in this way, the more, and, and I think you'll identify with this, is what anxiety is, is an anxiety is a storytelling terrorist. It's a storytelling terrorist. Follow me on this. What it does is anxiety grabs your hope and it grabs your security. It grabs the possibility of these things and the possibility of confidence and the possibility of happiness. And it takes them from you and puts a gun to their head and tells you, if you don't do what I say, I'll keep these from you. I'll kill them. It's a terrorist. It grabs those things and holds them. And it has a gun to their head and it's pointing to you and said, you've got to do what I tell you to do or you will not have a chance at these things, at hope, at security, at joy, and at happiness. But see, it's not just a terrorist. It's actually a storyteller because what happens is it begins to tell us stories. It creates these really creative narratives about the future and about the possible futures according to how you choose to obey anxiety. Right? It has a hold and it predicts this imaginary horrific ways and it says, if you don't obey me, look at what could unfold for you. These imaginary threatening narratives start about the possible future and those stories start to unfold in our imagination. The what ifs, the what if you fail, what if you're lonely, what if you're exposed, what if you choose the wrong job, what if you say no to the wrong thing, right? What if you say no to the wrong opportunity, to the wrong coffee meeting, to the wrong class, to the wrong important person? What if, right? What if that commitment could have been the one? And these hypotheticals, these stories that keep getting told, these what ifs, once you start telling those stories and those stories take root in you, anxiety has, its in, has you and its grip. And you're gripped with fear of everything, believing that you may never be happy. And anxiety is telling you, listen, just hold on a little bit longer. Follow me a little bit longer. Because anxiety is always holding hope out for you right around the corner. Right? The most, this might be the most revolutionary aspect of the Bible we encounter tonight. is simply this, is that anxiety is not the way it's supposed to be. You don't have to have it. It is not okay to normalize anxiety and to just let it persist because that's just the way it is. Anxiety is not like gas prices. You can do something about it. There's actually freedom to be had But here's how it doesn't come. It doesn't come by walking out here, uh, walking 
out of this room still believing the life-stealing lie that it's okay. This is the lie we all want to walk out of this room with. It's okay. I'm almost there. I can handle this for now until I finally get where I want to be. And there in that place, once I'm there, I'll have control and I'll finally be able to deal with anxiety. That's a lie. You're thinking, anxiety is just a part of the path I've chosen. I'm going to get to this stage in life where I want to be. And then I'm going to deal with with anxiety. What you are doing with that line of reasoning is feeding anxiety. You are growing it. You are nourishing it. You are actively driving its its roots deeper in your heart. And it's going to be your God unless another one intervenes. Because the very compromise that we want to make, that whole notion of compromise is the place, it's the most fertile soil for anxiety. I'll manage the anxiety for now, and once I have life under control and my dreams in hand, then I'm going to rest. You'll never have rest if you walk out of here with that plan. So where does anxiety come from? It has this grip on us. Where does it come from? Jesus starts to tell us in the first half of these verses, it comes from trying to make uncertain things, things that are uncertain by nature. And when I say uncertain by nature, that means you can't change them. It comes when you try to make uncertain things certain so that they can be your treasure. It comes when you try to make uncertain things certain so that they can be your treasure. Jesus is saying, life is uncertain. The future is uncertain. The things of life, the treasures in this world, your dreams are uncertain by nature. And you cannot change that. And this is, this is a truth that you don't have to believe in if you're a Christian. This is 100% true whether or not you're a Christian. All science, all philosophy, every worldview. This truth is so simple it sits at the foundation of anything. Nobody's arguing against this truth. And it's simply this. The things of this world are passing. Nobody's denying that. The things of this world are fading. Unavoidably. And Jesus is saying, don't make the treasure of your life from the things that you cannot hold on to. From the things that moth and rust destroy. What he's saying is from things that time can take from you. Or from things that the thief can steal. What he's saying is things that circumstances can take from you. Look at your dreams. Can time take it? Are there potential circumstances that can take it? This past weekend, we had a really cool opportunity, me and some seniors, to go and spend time with Dave Evans at his beach house in Santa Cruz. He's a professor at the Divinity School. I mean, sorry, at the Design School. (laughs) He could be a professor at the Divinity School. Um, And we did this really interesting exercise on Friday night that that captured my imagination and really uh, was great for me. What we did is we read through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we read every passage in the book of Ecclesiastes on the issue of toil and work. And if you're not familiar with that book, what that book is, is written um, by Solomon, a man who is accounted to be one of the wisest men ever. And it's his account of going through all the things of life and examining examining them very closely and saying, can this thing give me substance? Can it give me a connection to reality? Can this thing hold me? Can this thing bear the weight of my soul? And it's his just systematic examination of all these different areas. And what we did at Dave's house is we just looked at his consideration of the notion of work. And, and, and Solomon considering my toil. 
can I find meaning in toil? And all throughout Ecclesiastes, these are the issues we walk through. Solomon looked through, what about fixing things? Can that give me meaning? And he found that it couldn't. He examined it closely. What about allocating resources? Couldn't give him meaning. What about making things? What about being productive? What about leaving a legacy? What about accumulating wealth? What about consuming nice things? What about winning? What about growing wealth? He systematically goes through each of these and comes to the conclusion, hoping to find meaning in these. Like, ah, now I've finally figured out what our work is for, where our dreams are to arrive. And Solomon comes to the conclusion on each of these systematically. Oh, it couldn't bear the weight of my soul. It couldn't give me meaning. The word he used was vanity or frustrated or like a vapor. Temporary. He realized they were fleeting. And ultimately they, they blow away. They're hollow. Moth and rust destroy them. Time will take them away or circumstances will take them away. And that was just him examining the topic of work. Throughout Ecclesiastes, he looks at relationships, he looks at knowledge, he looks at all these other things, and he finds the same conclusion. And Jesus is saying here the same thing. This world is temporary. It is by nature, meaning irreversibly, uncertain. And it's impossible for you to hold on to it for very long. Uncertain things you can hold on to. We're not denying that. You just can't hold on to them in perpetuity. And when Jesus talks about the eyes right here, he talks about the eye and he says, what he's saying is, he's talking about our ability to see the world as it really is. Do you see the world? He's trying to say, do you see the world the right way? See, light is the truth. He's saying, does your eye have light? Can it see the true nature of things? Namely, that they are uncertain. Your life if you can't admit that the world, in fact, is the way it is, meaning our worldly dreams are passing unavoidably and unstoppably, if you can't see that, then you can't see the world as it is, and your life will be growing darkness. Your vision is blocked. You don't see the true nature of things. And if you, if you refuse to see that about our worldly dreams, then you're going to hold on to this world as tight as you can, Unwilling to admit that it is and it will slip through your fingers. Unstoppably. Anxiety comes when we try to make uncertain things of life into certain things so that we can then treasure them and find our meaning in them. When he says treasure, he's talking about a treasure is something that you exercise all your energies to seek because in seeking it, in the hope of attaining it, you find security. That's what treasure is. You use your resources to seek it because you think if you get treasure, treasure means security. And if you try to secure what is by nature insecure, what does that mean? That means your life is a life of anxiety. That is how anxiety is born. And it will consume you. The lie that this terrorist storyteller anxiety is telling you is this. This is the lie. If you make the right choices, then you will have the right opportunities. And if you take the right opportunities, the right path will lay out before you in this life, and you will get the things and do the things that can give you security. That's the lie of the storyteller terrorists. It's a lie that we choose to believe, and it's a lie because all the things of this life will fade 
What treasure are you orienting your resources and your opportunities toward? It begs the question, what's your treasure? What's our treasure? When he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he's telling us about how to find our treasure. Look at your daydreams. Right? Look, what, what's the fantasy you entertain about the life you want? That's your treasure. That's where your heart is. That's where your heart naturally goes when all of a sudden you don't have anything in your mind. That's your treasure. Right? Look at your fears. Our terror tells us a lot about who we really are. We don't want it to, but it's probably the most keen and accurate insight into who we really are. What is fearful for you? What is a disaster for you? Right? Look at your emotions. Very clear indicator of where our treasure is. Here's one. Look at your jealousies. Who are the people that you can't stand when they succeed? Tells us a lot, doesn't it? Who are the people that when things work out for them, you have to fake being happy for them because you wanted that for you? Right? Say me on Twitter. I have like 200 followers, you know? (laughs) 80,000. Do your eyes see the world? You know what? Twitter followers are fading, aren't they, Sammy? Yes, they are. Twitter followers are fading. Do your eyes see the world the way it is? That treasure won't sustain Sammy. You wanted it to sustain you, didn't you? I would have wanted it to sustain me. I don't think I could handle this. Why I don't have 80,000 followers? Jesus thought you were maybe strong enough to handle 80,000 followers, but it won't sustain you. 80,000 people hanging on your every word won't get you there. It really won't. <laughs> this is for you. I'm re- y'all, I'm just preaching to Sammy. It, y'all just... <laughs> Do you choose to obscure your vision about the true nature of things and lay up treasures that are, are destined for decay because anxiety will grow and grow and grow to consume you? Now, let me tell you what he's not saying. Jesus is actually not saying don't, he's not saying be irresponsible. He's not saying actually, he's not even saying don't make plans for the future. Elsewhere, the Bible clearly indicates wisdom about working hard. 1 Thessalonians 5, he, Paul says, admonish the idol, make sure people work. Proverbs 6 says, consider the ant sluggers. He's saying you should work like an ant. All throughout the Proverbs, there are places that talk about planning for the future. He's not saying be irresponsible, don't work hard, and don't plan. He's talking about your emotional and psychological and spiritual relationship with your work and your plans. He's talking about how you relate to your work and your plans. And your attempts to control the future. When you make those things your hope. When you ask something that's by nature uncertain to be your security. Do you know that accomplishing your dreams will not give you security? I'm not sure if anybody else is saying that, but we have to hear it. Do you know that accomplishing your dreams will not give you security? He's saying this. Be careful to listen to me right here. Your dreams, they're just that. They're dreams, which means they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. It doesn't mean actually that they don't exist. It means that one day they won't exist. It's okay. Dreams are not bad things. But if you can't see that one day they won't exist, then your eyes are darkened. It doesn't mean that they're not good. Their goodness is just short term. And you've got to see the fundamental nature of reality 
And if you don't, what you will do is you will serve that dream above all things. And it will be your master. And God doesn't compromise. He doesn't co-master people. He's jealous for you like a good lover is jealous. He will not permit other lovers to have your service. It's either them or him. So verse 25 begins the therefore. He's laid out. Do you see the uncertainty of the world and of our dreams in the world? Do you see that either time or circumstances will take them away? Are you seeing that rightly? Does your eye see the truth? You can't serve them both. He gives us 25, therefore, and He begins to walk us out of anxiety. And y'all, here's the simple application for tonight. The path out of anxiety is hearing the words of your Father. The path out of anxiety is hearing the words of your Father. My children are already full of anxiety. Second grade and kindergarten. The public school system here is jacked up. People are so intense. They're doing division in second grade. I think I have like theological problems with that, but that's another conversation. (laughs) My children already think they're frustrated by math. Math is stealing peace from these beautiful little girls. They're frustrated by coloring. They're frustrated by angry birds. And they... (laughs) This is what they believe. And we're not that different from these little six-year-olds and eight-year-olds. They believe, if I master these things, I'll be happy. They already believed the lie that perfecting things in this life, that's the key to solving anxiety. But you can come to my house and you can watch. You can watch me kill anxiety. I have the capacity to do it in my household. I wish I could do it long term. I can't, but I can do it for a little while. I have a little bit of power to do a little bit of help. Because you know what kills anxiety? Me. (laughs) You need a hug, Josh. Is that like... (laughs) My children carry a lot of anxiety. And for a little while, and only temporarily, because my love is not great, I can kill their anxiety. My hugs, my words, my attention, my smiles, my giggles, my snuggles. Everybody else is thinking snuggles are sweet, dude. I just didn't want you to tell anybody. (laughs) Sometimes Josh needs a hug, too. Um, They kill anxiety in my children. It brings back joy. And they forget about even caring about being perfect in math. You know what happens? They still try to do well. They actually do. But they do it from a position of security, having delighted in their father's love, instead of a position of insecurity, trying to gain it by being perfect. And what Jesus is saying in verse 25, He's saying, therefore, and that therefore means things being what they are. Things being what they are, don't be anxious about them. Because of who your Father is. Your Father feeds the birds of the air, and He loves you more than these. See, He's giving us fatherly language right here. He clothes the lilies of the field, and yet you stress about these things. The Gentiles, the people who don't know Him, they stress about these things, but your Father knows what you need. Jesus is reminding God's people, and we need to be reminded all the time, don't you see who your Father is? There's one thing needful. There's only one place that kills anxiety. Hard work and dream accomplishment cannot, by nature, 
solve the riddle of anxiety. There's only one place that anxiety dies, and it's in the kingdom of God. That phrase is huge. He gives us that conclusion at the end, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The kingdom of God is the main topic that Jesus talks about in His ministry. In Mark 1, when He begins His ministry, it says, He came proclaiming the kingdom of God. If you read the Gospels, what Jesus talks about more than anything else, more than the cross, is the kingdom of God. If you read the parables, almost every parable is introduced by the kingdom of God is like. And as Jesus begins to speak into our anxiety and remind God's people who their father is, he says this, there's one thing needful, seek first the kingdom of God. And this is what the kingdom of God is. It's the place where the reign and the rule of God is recognized, where his authority and his word are held as preeminent as above all. Here's a simpler way to think of it. It's the place where God's words are taken seriously. The context for killing anxiety is taking the word of God seriously. To take it through all the means and all the forms of considering it and letting it define for us the true nature of reality. To seek the kingdom of God is to take the word of God seriously. And he says, if you do this, you'll have all that you need. If you do this, all these things will be added unto you. And what he's saying is this, hear this. He's not saying, if you do this, you'll get what you want. He's saying this, if you do this, your Father will give you what you need. And you can't hold God's promises hostage. You can't say, all right, I'll cut a deal here. I'll seek the kingdom as long as I get what I want from God. Because then what that means is you're not actually seeking the kingdom first. You're seeking it contingently. As long as these other things come my way, I'll keep seeking the kingdom. Which means you're actually committed to these other things more than the kingdom. And if it doesn't get them for you, you'll try something else. And he's saying, take the word of your father seriously. Above all things, above everything, seek first the kingdom of God. What kills anxiety is hearing the words of your dad Remembering the character of God the Father. It's only dads who can kill anxiety, who can kill worry. It's only their words. Seek the kingdom of God first. Here's what His Word does. Here's what happens when we begin to take this seriously. His Word allows us to own our sin. This is an unforgiving world. And the more competitive you get, the less forgiving it is. But His Word allows us to own our sin. We think that that's bad news, but it's good news to hear that it's safe just to own who you are. This is me. I can't deny it. I'm tired of justifying it. I don't want to hide it. I'm not who I should be. And His words create a context in which it's safe to own your junk because this is His word for you. Exodus 34, I am merciful and slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity. That kind of dad allows you to own your failure. But he doesn't let us get swallowed by our failure. That dad comes in and bears our failure for us in his son Jesus. See, when you come and attend to the Father's words, your failures don't define you. But you're actually also freed from your successes or potential successes defining you. His covenant love defines you. And that's the death of anxiety. The way Dave talked about it this weekend... 
is he said something similar to this. He says, life is not work your tail off and maybe you'll prove to be okay. Rather, from the secure favor of your father, you're okay. So go out and play. What if school, what, I mean, this is kind of a beautiful image. What if school, what if life, what if work was play? That you engaged in from the position of secure love from your father instead of life and work being self-justifying, fear-driven toil. You can never live life that way until you attend to the words of your father. Until you hear them and believe them. And this is what it would look like at Stanford. To give maybe a brief picture of what it might look like, you would probably accomplish a little less. Uh, you would say no to a few great opportunities. You actually would. And you would feel far better for it. You'd actually start to enjoy your work. It would actually become play for you instead of self-justification. And your deepest joy would be the chances that you get to hear from your father and your chances to be with your brothers and your sisters. That's what it would practically look like if we begin to take the words of God seriously here. I want to close with two stories uh, that are stories not about sons, but about fathers. Um, I, I've been recently <coughs> reading more and more about Andre Agassi's story, a former tennis great in the 90s. And uh, his dad was a first-generation immigrant, came over to America, poor. And when Andre was born, he realized... And from very early on, age four and five, he laid the mantle of this responsibility at Andre's feet. He said, if we can make you a tennis great, our family can realize the American dream. And so at ages of four and five, he started to train Andre uh, by age six and seven over five to six hours a day. Uh, in, in his autobiography, his dad built a machine called the Dragon, which is this rapid-fire tennis machine. And Andre would have to hit over a 1,000 balls a day, age 7. He drove him. His dad drove him. Work hard, accomplish your dream, then all will be well. And you know what happened? Maybe you don't. His life crumbles. He actually, in the process of becoming the preeminent global tennis star, on the inside, he crumbles. He actually begins taking crystal meth, and here's why he starts taking crystal meth. During his career arc, he's, this is his quote, I took it because only then I felt the tidal wave of, of euphoria that sweeps away all the negative thoughts in my head. I never felt so alive. It's the only place I felt hopeful. Top tennis player on the planet. Only place he felt hopeful was when he could drug himself to stop thinking about being driven to succeed top of his field, accomplishing far, far more than probably many of us. He did it, and anxiety led him to crystal meth because it's the only place he experienced hope. And the way he got there is his father told him the path to happiness is working hard to accomplish the American dream. His father said, lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Take hold of the things that by nature are uncertain and insecure. Let's not listen to reason that these things fade. That, that's actually reasonable. And that these things take life. Instead, let's get control. You do that, and you're going to have security and hope, Andre. Our family's going to have security and hope. And it drove him insane. 
drug addicted. And you find out over the course of the biography, he ends up, this, I think this is where a lot of us are, hating tennis but afraid to quit it. Are we not committed to a bunch of things we don't like but are afraid of getting, quitting? Here's the reason why we're afraid to quit the things we don't like that are killing us. It's because we haven't listened to the good father. That's the reason why. It's because we haven't listened to the good father. Here's the story of another father you've heard from earlier in this quarter. I'm not going to brag on my dad too much, but this will be the last time. I used to be a truck driver. Uh, Several of y'all know that. Um, Some of the South Carolina students might have heard this story before. Some of y'all have heard it. I drove for a food service distributor. Um, when the way I drove trucks, we would come into work at 3 a.m. in the morning. And what you do is you go and get the tractor. It's across the truck yard, and you take it over to the trailer. Uh, you attach it to the trailer, and you perform all these safety checks. You check the coupling between the tractor and the trailer, uh, the air brakes, the cargo. You check all that stuff, and then you're off. Now, what you need to know is in a shipping yard at 3 a.m. in the morning, that's when it's running full bore. Everybody's there. Uh, 30 to 40 drivers out there, deliveries out there. They're all dealing with their trucks. And in that context, in my truck driving days, I pulled off the dock. And about 150 yards off the dock, I thought Jesus was coming back. Something happened. I don't know what it was. But the truck, it didn't explode. But I was driving the truck, and the front of the truck comes two feet off the ground in front of me. This horrible noise that sounds like the earth opening up. And I'm terrified. Shot through with adrenaline. Like, if y'all had that adrenaline shot where you're shaking, you don't know what's going on anymore. I don't know what happens. And I turn around, and 50 feet behind me, my trailer is on the ground. The trailer has slidden off the back of the truck and fallen on the ground because I didn't check the coupling the right way. Um, I hadn't properly secured it. And it's laying there on the ground behind me. It's damaged I'm embarrassed, I'm shamed in front of all these other people. The load's damaged, the trailer's damaged. I'm shot through the adrenaline, I'm shaking. And I pull my phone to call my supervisor, who's asleep at 3.15 in the morning. And there's no excuse. It's my fault. It's nobody else's. And he gets a word. uh, And before he gets a word out, I tell the story, like, here's what I've done. Uh, There's no excuse about it. And here are his first words. And you know them. It's okay, son. Because my supervisor was my dad. It's okay, son. If there was shame for me, how much more shame for him? Right? In front of all the other men he supervised, he gave his son a job. And his son wrecked it. 20,000 pounds of groceries. Right? Now, here's the reality. I had work to do. From that moment, there was still work for me to do. Right? I had responsibilities to attend to. There were even consequences that I had to deal with. Not punishment, but consequences. There was a mess that I had to work out. Right, But none of that undid me. The life that I did have to go from and live out and handle responsibilities in didn't undo me. The consequences I had to embrace didn't undo me. I went forward and I took care of the task in front of me, but it didn't destroy me because my dad said, It's okay, son. You hear the two different dads. One dad said, son, you are what you accomplish. Let that threat drive you to perfection. And it did. Drove him to perfection. And it stripped Agassi of his heart and of his humanity. Far more successful in his field than I ever will be in my field. Far more driven, far more competent, far more compensated. 
and anxiety hollowed out his humanity. Because his dad said, you are what you accomplish. And I'm the other son. Incompetent. Right? Far less accomplished, far less to be proud of. And Agassiz was terrified at the height of his dreams. Terrified at the height of his dreams. And I was secure at the depth of my foolishness. It had nothing to do with me. It was all about who my dad was. Do you think that accomplishing your Stanford dreams will quiet the anxiety? It will not. The dreams are not wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. The dreams are not wrong, but they're just that. They're dreams. They're here for a while. Enjoy them. That's fine. They're gone tomorrow. They cannot bear the weight of your soul. But the eternal words of your dad, you attend to those, you hear from him, you hear from him especially in the midst of failure, their security. Because he's the father that exalts over his children, who delights in his children, who pursues his children, who intercedes for his children, and who dances over his children. Hear the words of your father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the good father. And I pray that I pray that, that would be deep, lengthy rest for us in your name. We pray. Amen.